Good morning, and uh, welcome to the lectionary podcast discussion on January 30th. Um, in this episode, we're going to focus on the lectionary gospel reading for Sunday, February 4th. Some background. Uh, this podcast started about 15 years ago as a digital descendant of the Palmasia Presbyterian's Church's um, lectionary Sunday school class that was taught by Bill Walla for many years. Um, the podcast uh, team includes both lay people and seminarians, and we're working to be consistent and faithful to the lectionary calendar year B. Here's how it works. Each week, one of us kickstarts the process by posing three questions. Then we gather on Tuesday at around 6.30 a.m., where our little team takes about 45 minutes um, to share what we've uncovered independently. And the people joining me in the conversation today are... Bill Hall, St. Petersburg, Florida. John Demofoyce, Tampa, Florida. Sarah Mickelson, Tampa, Florida. Um, and this week our passage um, is Mark chapter 1, verse 29 through 39. And this is a continuation of where we were last week. And so um, I'm going to start reading at verse 29. And as soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door, and he cured many who were sick and with various diseases, and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up, he went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him, and when they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. And he answered, Let us go on to the neighboring towns, so that I might proclaim the message there also. For that is what I came out to do. And then he went through Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. And that ends the reading of our scripture. And I would be remiss if I didn't say, like Charles Willer would say, thanks be to God. Thank you, God. And looking um, at this particular passage, my eyes were drawn to verse 31, verses 35, and 37 through 39 specifically. And my question looking at verse 31 has to do with um, restoration and being healed. And if we, like the demon-possessed man in the synagogue last week, or Peter's mother-in-law this week, are healed and redeemed by Christ, for what does that healing prepare or restore us for? For what or why are we lifted up and restored to ourselves? And that's my first question. Bill, what are your thoughts? Uh, thank you for the, uh, I would say, so what question. What difference does it make? Now, Sarah, I'm going to exercise a moment of personal privilege. Um, and I'm going to speak to this further. But we're about to read about a woman serving people. And as I understand it, you are now completing your 
current term of service on the session. Is that correct? Okay. And I want on behalf of myself and Sybil and the church to thank you for your service. Uh, I think you've particularly focused in adult education. Am I correct? Mm -hmm. So, uh, and this podcast is under that umbrella. So sincerely, Sarah, thank you for your, I love that question, energy, intelligence, imagination, and love that's in the ordination. And you've done that well. And a sincere thank you, Sarah, for your service. Uh, Now, we need to acknowledge that this is an example of how an ancient scripture can have a different impact today. In the time it was written, probably no eyebrows were raised that the woman, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, immediately serves them. It does create some angst in today's world, and I've had those conversations with women who say, you know, here we go, it's stereotyping a woman's places to get up uh, and go serve others, and, and I'm sensitive to that and do not want in any way to dismiss that, but to acknowledge it. Um, I think, though, it can be heard to say that we recover for a reason. Mm-hmm. We don't recover to stay in bed and continue to be served when we are capable of taking care of ourselves. Many of our listeners and viewers know of my uh, appreciation for the 12 steps of the recovery movement. And twelve, the 12th step is having had a spiritual experience as a result of this course of action recovery. We will seek to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. And as a pastor, I learned early if someone came to me dealing with issues of addiction, that the most effective person to serve them, since I had not been through addiction, was a person, a healthy person in recovery, who whose commitment after recovery was to serve others. So it seems to me that just as the illness or other needs of people are a concern to the whole community, so in turn, the one served or healed or restored has the opportunity to serve the larger uh, community. Though, if I may expand your question a little, Sarah, for what or why are we lifted up and restored not only to ourselves, but to and for others? Those are my thoughts at the moment. John, can you can you bring more light to this? Well, I thought Bill lit it well, um, so I'm right with him. I mean, probably the most accurate thing I could say is amen. But I, I'll say the, the short answer to your question, for what or why are we lifted up and restored, I, I think is to serve, right? That's, and that's when, when, when we encounter Christ and we're healed or redeemed, lifted up by Christ, we are, um, service is the right response. The faithful response. So I think I think that's a, a direct and um, obvious teaching point in the story because it's Jesus that heals her, um, and it's it's a it, it's a historical account 
Here the gospel is reporting something that happened that day. It's not a parable Jesus was telling, for example, but an account of his life. But uh, I think it, in the narrative of this biography, Mark's biography, it's paradigmatic for what we are to do, the followers of Jesus, when he redeems or restores us, and that is to serve. Um, it does raise lots of, I think, helpful questions around it. And some of them are quite pragmatic. Part of what I think it also shows and why they remember it in the narrative of the life of Jesus is that she was really healed. If you, if you don't get that, you don't have a sense of how she was healed. So maybe, maybe she got sick again. Maybe she rose because she had a guest. And even though she was sick, she still insisted on, you know, extending hospitality. Um, but I think this tells us that the fever left her and she was healthy and well enough to, to serve the meal. Um, and, and I'm, you know, imputing into it a meal, um, that that's what she was doing when she was serving, um, that it was a meal at which they were to eat. I, I wonder about that. Am I wrong or, or am I just assuming too much? in terms of it being a meal, but it looks like the different translations, uh, you know, uh, in, in their um, particular contemporary idioms come out that way, that it's a meal. Um, and so it can, it connects um, personally with me, with my own journey about coming together and people coming together after worship and going to a home. There, there's a meal. So it makes it feel familiar to me. Um, and the last piece I wonder about is, does it speak to that kind of familiarity in the community? Is this somebody that the early Christian community knew? Did Mark know her? Um, you know, archaeologists seem confident, and with time, even more confident that they have this house, that they know. I, I've seen the place physically where uh, they, they have this archaeological dig, and and as you keep reading about it, the d- degree of confidence with which they report this is the house that they're talking about here it seems just stronger so early on they know this house uh, the christian community knows this house and the archaeological evidence seems to indicate that they were worshiping there there are elements in the house and how it's been changed early on to accommodate a larger group um, did they know this woman uh, was she a part of the early christian community? if you were healed you know, does that increase the likelihood that you then become a part of the follower of Jesus? In Mark's account, um, this is either the first or the second healing, depending on whether you count the guy with the unclean spirit in the synagogue. Of course, that's an exorcism, right? And this is a healing. And, and that point seems to be picked up by Mark in this passage, too, as we come along. He seems to draw a distinction between healing the sick with various diseases and casting out many demons, verse 34. So on that basis, she's the first one physically healed, and I, 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 it personalizes it for me, and it makes me look for the service examples and people I've known personally whose lives have been very touched by Jesus. Thanks, John. Um, you know, Jesus walks across a number of boundaries um, in his ministry, and we have talked about this before. And there's a boundary in the first century of religious rules and purification for hygiene reasons that Jesus just goes through 
as he approaches the demon-possessed man, and also uh, as he approaches Peter's mother-in-law when she has a fever. Um, it's not lost to me that a fever in this time and place could be life-threatening, could be contagious. And it's, it's interesting to me that I can almost see this, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about what this scene looks like, and they would probably meet Jesus at the door of the home and go, don't come in, we have someone who's sick. And I'm thinking about how we treated each other during COVID times and how careful we tried to be to not spread the contagion. And yet he crosses over that threshold, goes directly to her, takes her by the hand and extends healing to her. And I think that that's another statement of authority that's very important about how Jesus moves through our world and and is the presence of God on earth. And I, so I, I kind of want to step back and go, this healing restores both of these people, um, whether it's at the demonic casting out of, of demons or if it's a transition to wellness, each are given back wholeness. Each are restored to relationships that may be strained based upon how people responded to the possession or from the fever. So I'm thinking about that separation that occurs as we um, kind of observe someone who's behaving in a way that, that indicates to us there's a problem. And, and um, you know, we often step back and wait to see what's going on before we respond. And so it's these people were lifted up and they represent hope to everybody around them. I think that's an interesting moment because if Jesus has the authority over unclean spirits and over sickness, then it's there's not much he can't do. And I think that's the the impression we get as we read through this. And, and at the very beginning of his ministry, we're seeing this take place. So it's, it's they're being lifted up to represent hope for everybody around them and for them to become witnesses to the hands of God living in the world and acting in the world right now. And, um, and it led me to think about the wellness of God moving through the world and that they are the beginning or the first um, concentric circle that's responding to this change of this particular gravity, the moment of this gravity with this the healing moving through the world. Hello, love. Um, that's my dog, everybody. Uh, so that was how I thought about this. Um, I completely agree that I think we are restored so that we might be of service to others. It brought my brain back to the moment where Abraham and God are having a conversation about, I will make from you a people. And I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to others. And I think that that's um, a, a statement of how we are called to respond when we encounter the miraculous. So um, that's how I was thinking about this particular question and how we're lifted up and restored to ourselves. Now, question number two, I'm thinking about service and restoration. And in thinking about that, I looked specifically at verse 35 as a, a moment of instruction. And what does verse 35 reveal about Jesus? And I'll read that. It says, in the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. 
Um, I said, what, what instruction might this hold for us? And John, I'm going to come to you first for this one. Part, part of what, how I encounter this, um, even when I'm rereading it from year to year or years to years in the three-year cycle of the lectionary, part, it always draws me into the chronology of these two stories. Um, and the story in Peter's mother-in-law house and the story in the synagogue uh, prior. Because I, I, I think, and I'm saying this because I'm not as clear as I once was about it, but I think essentially the story is capsulating, encapsulating a day in the life of Jesus. Remember in last week's pericope, it starts by saying, and they, because it was a Sabbath, he went to the synagogue. Now, I tend to think of the Sabbath for Jews starting at sunset um, on a Friday. Um, but in this story, in, uh, in the passage earlier, it's a Sabbath, and they go to the synagogue. But then in the, today's pericope, then they leave the synagogue, and they enter Simon, Andrew, and James, and John and uh, into the house in such a way that in verse 32, that evening at sundown, so it makes me think they left the synagogue, if you will, in the morning, the first part of the day, which uh, so that it's like the story runs from morning to morning because it ends, the, you know, then with this chronological reference that while it was still early in the morning, dark. So it's like 24 hours in the life of Jesus in the particular story. And I, I find myself wondering, why are we seeing that? Why are they giving us that? Why are they giving us a day? I mean, Mark's got a lot in his first chapter. This is the first time I think we've gotten a whole day in the life of Jesus. He's rolled. He's rolled into this now, and so that's. I, I think that's where it draws my head to start with is the chronology around the day in the life of Jesus, and um, the chronology that we live in, um, the movement of a day, our risings and our going to beds, our getting up and sleeping. So I guess we all see in this a classic Christian impetus to um, rise in the mornings and share in devotional life before we enter into the day. With Jesus as the primary example here, I, I've seen and heard and probably preached sermons entitled something like, um, in, be like Jesus, get up early in the mornings and uh, share in some devotional life. And I mean, I think that's in the message. But I also see the commentators saying here, um, at least one, um, don't think that this means Jesus was willing to be sleep deprived. Don't assume immediately that um, what Jesus is telling us here is that um, he valued this prayer life more than he valued sleep. Um, because you've got to remember that they don't have electric lights and they're not staying up watching the NFL divisional playoff, uh, the second one. So they go to bed earlier. And, uh, and I, I will say that's my experience in Haiti and the times I've been there in the rural places. People go to bed, um, uh, you know, earlier um, and, th and they rise earlier. And they're rising um, across the community. In the 20 times I've been there, they're rising, tending to animals and chores. Um, and, uh, so... That I, I don't think it's telling us um, value this over sleep deprivation. Um, 
And I don't, I don't uh, think that's a healthy message. And we know sleep is important. We know, I, I, I don't think we want to see in Jesus somebody who simply powered through and, and uh, you know, didn't sacrifice physical care for devotional life. That may be, you know, in other stories, but I'm not sure it's in this one. Um, uh, and, uh, so it, it, it's sort of converse in terms of what I think historically we may have done with it, at least especially in modern times in terms of interpretation. Uh, but the, it's a deserted place. And what does that say to us about the balance of time apart and time together? as a rhythm for what restores us. Just in a brief time, I've talked to other people about this passage this week. I've come to see that people have different feelings about being in deserted places. Um, for some, it's restorative. Uh, for many, some people find it burdensome or frightening, um, and it's not the way they renew themselves. But clearly for Jesus it is. He rises early and prays, and he's alone when he prays here, not with others. Thank you, John. You know, it seems in Mark's gospel that he often couples or pairs prayer in deserted places with restoration. And, you know, I thought about how many times have we been to a deserted place in the gospel? And we see John the Baptist in the deserted place. We see Jesus going to the deserted place. Um, and it's interesting to me that that's often where we hear the voice of God and we see the interaction with the, 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 the God of salvation. Um, so I, I wondered about Jesus moving to and through deserted places for rest and to where God can be heard more frequently than among the crowds. Um, Mark's Jesus seems to seek solitude and restoration prior to or following moments of great compassion. Um, I'm thinking in, in the examples, there are three in the book of Mark. The first one is this particular moment where he moves into the deserted place for solitude and prayer. But he does this following the healing or the feeding of the 5,000, and he does it uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so I, I think these moments are paramount to how Mark tells his story. Um, and I think this points to a deep connection between Jesus's ministry and his prayer life. Um, in each of these situations, Jesus, I'm going to turn my page, demonstrates prayerful communion with God prepares and repairs. And I use those words um, to serve. So it may be of service to us as well, those moments of uh, quiet. And, and I'm not going to say in a deserted place. Sometimes the most deserted place in my home happens to be the bathroom. And I think it's a moment when we have the opportunity to take a deep breath, to hear the thoughts in our own head without um, the punctuation of others' needs. And I think that that's difficult in, in our time to uh, to move away from the demand or the uh, instantaneous need that's coming toward us. If, if it might have the face of a four-year-old, it might have the face of a, a fuzzy dog, it might be, um, you know, somebody in need of, have you seen my keys? Do you know where my glasses are? But it's still important, I think, to find that stillness so that we have the we are afforded the opportunity to hear 
And so I, I, I marvel at this balance that Jesus can, can strike between not only sleeping, but also having time for quiet. Um, I, I'm, as I'm aging, I'm finding myself to be more of an introvert. And it may be because I've been living with introverts for a while and I'm starting to feel more comfortable in that realm. But um, there's something lovely about quiet. What do you think, Bill? Um, I was, my thoughts were shaped by reading uh, one of the resources I consulted, uh, a scholar named uh, Collins Ako with the General Board of Global Ministries of the United Methodist Church says, the deserted place mentioned in this passage is not a desert, but here was what caught my attention, but a place void of distractions where Jesus could give himself unreservedly to prayer. And that led me to, I think, what I understood you to say, Sarah, we don't necessarily have to physically go to somewhere. Uh, one, and, and this is something I've slowly learned, even in the midst of distraction, to create within myself for a time uh, a, a, a place devoid of distractions uh, where I can reflect on what I'm hearing or what is happening. And Clearly, the message is that those who serve need themselves to find renewal and rest and restoration. We all know this isn't the only instance in the Gospels where Jesus wants to be alone and people come after him. There's almost a pattern to that. And I think it rings with reality. If you are a person who is capable of uh, empathy and of wisdom and compassion and effective counsel, of course people want to come to you. If I get sick, I want to call my doctor. <laughs> I want that doctor to know that I need him or her, even if it's three o'clock in the morning. So that's reality. And for me, Sarah, it really underscores the humanity of Jesus, I think. I'm echoing John Devavoice's comments about this doesn't mean Jesus was superhuman and could deal, uh, live without an adequate amount of sleep. He was fully human. Um, and that Jesus was not always present and available to anyone who needed him. That's a, a, a possible distortion to think that Jesus was always with people serving them. No, there were, he needed alone downtime. Um, and I, I see it as Jesus needing to regroup and, and find clarity. And I think, for example, in my experience with hospice over decades, they quickly began to realize that they needed not just to serve the person terminally ill, but the caregivers. And they provide respite for caregivers. As a pastor, sometimes what I did was, with some energy, seek to convince the caregiving spouse, if you don't get some renewal, you're going to burn out. Uh, and I really appreciated that. And I, as far as I know, hospice still uh, offers that. And the, the final comment is that 
again, in the recovery movement, they talk about the importance of gaining clarity. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he gained clarity about his mission. Uh, in Matthew's account, following that temptation, Jesus calls his first disciples. In Luke, after the wilderness and Satan, Jesus goes to his hometown, preaches, gets rejected. His hometown's people try to kill him because he had clarified his ministry and his mission. So uh, we don't necessarily need a deserted place, but a place where we can gain clarity. Thank you for the question. Thank you, Bill. Uh, that leads me to my third question, and that's what did or can the followers of Jesus learn from verses 37 through 39? And I found that, that this is a neat discussion or, or presentation of the purposes of the visit. <laughs> I've come to teach and to heal, and 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 that it's not going to be just locally. We're going to keep moving and keep doing this. I, I think that's interesting that Jesus shares why he's come in these verses. To preach the good news of healing and hope in all forms. Um, disciples, Peter's mother-in-law, and the demon-freed, the demon-free man all stand in a moment of what Janet Hunt describes in her Dancing with the Word blog from dated February 1st, 2015. She calls this moment, and a moment of exquisite awareness, a time in which we catch a glimmer where the profoundly miraculous intersects the mundane, and everything is as God intended. We stand kind of dumbstruck in that moment, filled with the mystery and the wonder, and it's like we have this keen insight into the, the calm and the peacefulness that God has intended. Um, and then how might we be called to serve kind of bubbles to the surface. And I, and it's almost as if Jesus presents us with a statement of there's more to be done. Let's go. And the words, let's go on to the neighboring towns and continue this work. Um, it, it leads me down that path. It says we're living testimony to the healing and hope in the conversations and interactions we have with others, even today. Um, you know, I, I will say whether it's in your workplace or in your home and, or, or in the community where you might be a participant, you'll find people coming to you. I'm, I'm sure John, you've experienced this. And I know Bill, you have, um, people come to you sometimes just because they need, they need somebody to hear them. They don't need any action taken. They just need somebody to to be present in the moment with them while they kind of process what's going on around them. Other people do come and they want direction. Um, I often get phone calls from my children about, mom, this is a situation. What do you think I should do? And, and, you know, I'm grateful that I'm still being, um, what's the right word included in the conversations that they're having. It's just like, both the disciples and we are companions to this work of restoration in our world. And I think that's such a lovely inclusion. Um, it's kind of fun to be included in that particular um, process for me. And it says, working with those around us, we can renew hope 
in our own homes, in our neighborhoods, in our communities and beyond. I think that we, if we can call back that glimmer, that exquisite awareness that we are treated with, it becomes a, a small gift that we can package and give to someone else. And I think that's what being a living disciple looks like to me. What do you think? Um, I'm going to come back to Bill next with this. Okay. Um, here again in the verse verses you note, there's the phrase, the disciples telling me, everybody's searching for you. And again, uh, maybe I'm repeating myself. Here is Jesus who whose presence heals. And when he hears that other people need him, he leaves. Now, one can make too much of that. For me, it reminds me of something I often stressed when I was a pastor. I, and I tried to frame this carefully. You don't always have to go to a professional for help. I, I think of what I would say from the pulpit was God has someone who can stand alongside of you. It may be your spouse. It may be a neighbor maybe a co-worker, and trust that there is someone there for you. And occasionally I would get some feedback from somebody who would say, you know, Bill, I was going to call you and make an appointment, but I remember what you said, and I spoke to my husband. Or, or And believe it or not, occasionally a teenager. <laughs> I shared with my teenage son or whatever. So, again, I may be bridging something that doesn't fit here. But nevertheless, the, the, the text says, when told that others are coming who need you, Jesus said, let's go. Let's move on elsewhere. Um, and it, it reminds me that not only Jesus, but Jesus's gospel that we carry is about compassion and restoration. And the other thing I tried to stress, and, and John, I believe, uh, Sarah, I grew up in the tradition that emphasized whatever work you do is God's work. You don't have to become a, quote, full-time Christian uh, pastor or whatever, um, that all of us can carry that uh, message. And as is typical of me, I note that this story and it's basically the same way is told in all three synoptic gospels. And I mentioned that because I take that as a clue that the early Christian community said, this is a story that must be included. You don't, don't rest that Mark has already told us, retell the story, which I think is a lot of what we do in worship. We retell the story of, of the gospel. And um, also in each gospel account, healings precede and follow this narrative. As the old song says, one thing leads to another. Restoration and wholeness foster other restorations. And I wish there were more of that spirit in the church and in our world, especially our nation today. And finally, 
For me, this story invites, perhaps even compels us to explore the richness and diversity of healing and restoration in our lives and in our culture. Yes, we are told she had a fever. The, the story preceding it, a man with unclean spirits. Yes, but I think we need to search for a more robust understanding and engagement in healing. For example, healing of memories, healing of relationships, healing of vocations. I mention that because, again, given my many contacts with people in recovery, you talk about people who struggle for healing of memories because a part of the process was telling the person that they had offended that that they wanted uh, to make amends if possible. So there's and I, I, for me, sometimes in worship, there are, there is a healing, a healing of, again, memory or whatever. So I'm not, I'm not sure where I want to come out with this. I just hope that we can drill deeper into the meaning of healing and restoration. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. And John, you get the last word. What do you think? Um, I think, uh, that I say amen to what you all said, and uh, I, I, I maybe just add this possibility onto it. I, Bill, following up on what you were saying, we're seeing what the early Christian community thought was a particularly important day in the life of Jesus. I think you're right about that. That's why it's shared in the biographies. And in this day, um, Jesus does um, some very practically helpful and individually significant work. He heals sick people. He casts unclean spirits out of troubled and burdened and possessed people. And I suggest there's a third. He also prays. He spends time as part of the day, very significant part of the day, in the ministry of prayer or contemplation. Um, That sense of aloneness adds to the contemplative element of it in my reading of it. So those are important and practically changed lives. They changed individual lives. And they um, also um, uh, were in a particular place, a particular community, with a particular group of people um, in life together. Now, that's one way of being Christian, practically helpful in compassion and care, um, spending a life devoted to prayer and worship. Um, this now sees a willingness not to have those be the only things he does. He, he, he heals many, that's the exact word, but not all. And, and he goes on. Um, so those are important things, but Jesus also makes other choices in addition to that. This traveling away and proclamation, um, for whatever that we'll come to learn that involves, that's important enough also for him to leave the pragmatic work and pick up this proclamation work and traveling away. I think when you're a part of a community, like a community of faith, you have to weigh, you know, what when you're being called to stay and when you're being called to move away. And uh, that, I think, is all of us in the community of faith. Um, and, gee, that's a big decision for people. 
Um, and, uh, you know, does Christian faith call for you to stay in the community you're a part of? Because it's really important that somebody be there to pick up your autistic grandchild from the bus stop each day because you're the one he responds to and you're, you know, or is it okay for you to leave? I mean, there's people here who, you know, in some way are deeply involved with him now and some dependence uh, and he leaves. Um, and so I just think it lifts up for the community. Those can also be acts of Christian faithfulness, proclamation and leaving. Thank you, John. We're going to another place. <laughs> Those are all hard decisions. Um, I want to wrap up by making sure everybody's had an opportunity. Anything else you want to add, Bill? Well, I just wanted to say thank you to Palmasia Presbyterian Church, who sponsors this podcast um, in, in multiple ways. Thank you, John, for being a part of this. Um, it, the church is located at 3501 West San Jose in Tampa, Florida. And for more information, you can go to the website, palmasia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A dot O-R-G, um, where you'll find... Uh, wonderful uh, Christian education opportunities. You'll find recorded music. You'll have um, lots of opportunities to hear sermons by um, Kenny or Nicole or John. And uh, it's uh, just a wonderful wealth of uh, support that they've given us for this podcast. Um, And thank you. And uh, that'll be all. We'll see you next time.